Hello and welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity Myelopathy.org, where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers, and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and the founder of Myelopathy.org. And I'm Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and also a founder of Myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters by Myelopathy.org. So welcome, and today we're delighted to be joined by spine surgeon Dr. Zohar Gogwala following his recent randomized controlled trial of anterior versus posterior surgery. That's a trial which uses a computer to assign patients to either receive an operation from the front of the neck or an operation from the back of the neck. And amongst surgeons, this has really been an intense and popular focus of the debate for decades. But what about the community living with DCM, Ewan? Is this a question that resonates with them too? Yes, this is a really hot topic in the myelopathy community. You know, our Facebook support group has a large number of UK participants and American members. And the majority of people who have had posterior approach are mainly from the US. So this is a discussion that I'm looking forward to and to find out more about why these two different procedures are undertaken and what are the pros and the cons. Well, time to find out whether there can be some closure on this debate as we hear from Dr. Zohar Gogwala, Chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at the Leahy Clinical Medical Centre and Professor at Tufts University Medical School. And of course, the Chief Investigator of the first randomised controlled trial of anterior versus posterior surgery for cervical myelopathy. I have been very interested in patient uh, response to surgery for many years and had noticed that there were many patients who were having surgery for cervical myelopathy that had responses that were good in that the symptoms that they were coming to the doctor for were being treated and treated effectively. But there were some side effects from these operations that I was interested in looking at a little bit further because from a patient perspective, these side effects affected their quality of life. And I thought that since patients go to see surgeons and some surgeons perform the surgery from the front and some surgeons favor uh, surgery from the back, that there may be some differences in these complication rates, uh, so to speak, and that we might be able to learn from a patient perspective whether one approach is associated with fewer problems uh, compared with another approach. What a group of us did was we got together and said we would share our data. This was in 2008, and uh, we would start to measure patient-reported outcomes and look at our operations from the front and from the back. And this uh, pilot study uh, allowed us to, as a group of doctors, work together try to understand what our goals were for these operations and ultimately lay the foundation for this randomized controlled trial. So perhaps we can touch on that in a bit more detail then because I think this is obviously a question not just from I think a patient perspective but also professional perspective that's been frequently discussed and why did you feel as a group that that randomization element that use of a computer to put one person to one arm of the trial was was necessary here? 
A very, very important aspect of medical research is the ability to associate one treatment with a desired effect. And one of the problems associated with doing uh, medical research, particularly in surgery, is that when a, a surgeon or a proceduralist chooses a patient for a particular operation or procedure, there may be some patient-related aspects that are more relevant than the surgery itself. So you can imagine if there was a treatment A versus a treatment B, if the surgeon chose patients who were least likely to have problems or complications and treated them with procedure A, procedure A would look better. But in fact, it may be the case that it was all the patient uh, substrate, so to speak, that was dictating whether there were going to be complications or not. So a randomized trial gets away from that by randomly allocating a patient who has the desired condition that is being studied to treatment A versus treatment B, so that ultimately when you measure the results of treatment A versus treatment B, the differences would be more likely to be associated with the treatment as opposed to the specific patient, if that makes sense. But as you've alluded to there, particularly for surgery, perhaps with the preference of surgeons and their own views, that ability to randomize surgical technique has been has been a great challenge. And, and one of the innovative features of this trial is that you took quite an interesting approach to, to getting around that. Perhaps you could Describe that for us and, and how it came about. I think you're referring to our equipoise uh, panel. And uh, equipoise is a concept that was uh, described in the New England Journal of Medicine in uh, 1987. And the idea was that in conducting medical research, it is vitally important that physicians or doctors who are treating patients believe ethically that one treatment versus another that's being studied are equivalent as far as the knowledge that we have today. So it's inappropriate to do a randomized controlled trial if everyone believes that treatment A is better than treatment B, because then effectively as a doctor, you are assigning some of your patients to an inferior treatment. And that's not the way to do uh, science, and that's not ethical. So I thought that since there is such a preference by surgeons for one approach versus the other, that it might be useful for us as a group, again, to look at individual cases and have those cases reviewed by 10 or 15 of us as uh, experts in the field, and for us to just state what we would do in that case. And if the results come back that there's a real mix of opinion, then it, in a sense, in real time demonstrates that there is equipoise because we all, as physicians in this group, respected our colleagues' ability to make decisions and to do what they believe is right. So if half of the uh, experts say this operation should be done from the front, and half say the operation should be done from the back, then one could sit down with your patient, uh, so to speak, and say, look, if experts across the country look at this case, half of them are saying that we go from the front and half of them are saying that we go from the back. So if we were to get 
into this randomized trial, there's a 50-50 chance of how we go. And uh, you can see that depending on which center you might have gone to in the United States, it would have been a sort of a 50-50 chance of getting one treatment versus the other. One thing that we did do in this trial is that when we voted for these cases, that is when experts looked at the case, if 80% or more of surgeons looked at a case and said the same thing, then they were ineligible for the randomized trial. And the patient was informed that 80% or more of the experts favored one treatment over the other. And uh, then it was up to patient and doctor to discuss it. But most of the time, patient and doctor then went with what uh, 80% of the panel was saying in reference to the case. And that's fascinating. So what was the experience for you and your colleagues in, in, in conducting a trial in this manner, and perhaps also of the, of the patients who are being screened for participation? So I will tell you that patients almost uniformly embraced uh, this review. One fear that I had as a doctor was that patients would see the results of this type of expert review and become confused about why doctors could look at their particular data and come up with different answers. But in fact, most patients recognize that that's a part of medicine and they appreciated having multiple experts review their case to see whether there were any strong leanings one way or the other. So patients really enjoyed it. And I think patients benefited from it and saw value in it. Physicians, this took a little bit of convincing because a lot of physicians felt like you know, I have a practice, I have knowledge of this field, I want to be able to recommend a surgical treatment to my patient. And I don't necessarily want my patient to see what other uh, surgeons in different parts of the country think about my case, because they don't have the opportunity to sit down with my patient, interview my patient and understand all of the nuances. However, we recognized as a group that if we didn't have some way of conveying to patients that there was true equipoise between the surgical options, that patients would be leery of having their treatment assigned by a randomizer uh, in a computer. And so in the spirit of moving the science forward, in the spirit of getting the trial done, most of the uh, surgeons uh, said that they agreed with this approach. I will tell you that as the trial was underway, surgeons really warmed up to this, and many of them found it educational to see that colleagues that they knew and respected for years really saw things in a different way, and it allowed for some offline discussion uh, between doctors about what the drivers or factors were that made them choose one procedure uh, versus the other. So it was educational, uh, ultimately, for the doctors. And it sounds perhaps like in the beginning, even in the sort of setup of the trial, then perhaps there was some groundwork to convince colleagues to perhaps to pilot this as a process and see that it was going to be effective as well. Absolutely. It did take time. And as I said, you know, we started this effort in 2008 and uh, ultimately published the uh, results of the trial in uh, 2021. So a very long process indeed. And just following on from that, because I think it perhaps fits in with, with some of the fairly strict criteria there was to be even eligible to participate in this trial based on, I think, age. There had to be no evidence of ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament. You're looking at spinal cord compression at sort of two or more levels. Quite a specific subgroup. And I just wonder why those, those factors were, were identified as being required. 
Absolutely. So what we did is prior to initiating this trial, we uh, conducted a survey at the Cervical Spine Research Society to ask surgeons if there was a trial designed around cervical myelopathy, what type of patient do they feel would be appropriate for randomization? And after analyzing the results of this survey, we uh, were able to draw some conclusions around the profile or character of a patient that would be suitable for a randomized uh, trial. Many commented, for example, that uh, a patient with one level of spinal stenosis would probably strongly be favored for an anterior cervical discectomy infusion. And that's what the reason was behind having two or more levels of stenosis. We also noted that many surgeons feel very uncomfortable with the treatment of structurally significant OPLL, opacified uh, longitudinal ligament, with a ventral or anterior approach. And so uh, we wanted to exclude those patients. We wanted to do everything that we could so that the patient population that we had in the end uh, would be very suitable for either a front or a back procedure and would be also understandable for clinicians. And so we used entry and exclusion criteria that uh, most surgeons could readily recognize and appreciate. And we didn't have a lot of very complex or specific alignment parameters that were required for this trial. So at the end of the day, while there were some specific criteria, uh, and you're absolutely right about that, what we saw when we did our screening for the trial was that these uh, criteria that we've identified for the trial represent more than 50% of all patients with cervical myelopathy who are recommended for surgery. I think that really answers my question there because I always get nervous when there's so many criteria in place about how those results generalize and, and, and are interpreted, but it does clearly still represent a large proportion of, of, of everyday practice. Yes, I think it does. One of the changes that we made was when we had originally written the uh, grant proposal, we had written this to include patients from the age of 45 to 75. But as we got uh, started, we recognized that many patients who were, say, 75 to 80 were in pretty good health had significant cervical myelopathy, were excellent candidates for surgery, and the patients themselves were asking why they were being excluded from a clinical trial. And uh, so we appealed back to our federal sponsor, PCORI, to increase the age limit for the uh, trial, and uh, ultimately we, uh, we did that so that we included patients from 45 to 80. And again, an important part probably of then generalizing into practice. Absolutely. So just to get into a bit more detail, um, because I was interested by the selection of the of the measurements, what, what you were trying to look at as outcomes, the endpoints. And, and obviously your principal endpoint here, your primary endpoint was uh, the physical component score of the SF36. What was the reason for that choice from a design perspective? So as I mentioned, you know, my personal interest in uh, doing these types of studies is to make certain that we are really focused on patient response to surgery. And so I thought that while we would also be measuring what we as surgeons typically look at when we treat patients, that is their response to the myelopathic symptoms, that's important uh, for us. Um, I wanted the trial to be designed with a focus on patients and patient outcome. And so 
as we looked at the various validated tools that we have available for assessing patients after surgery, the SF36 physical component summary score seemed ideal. That is, patients really care about their physical functioning after surgery. It affects their ability to return to work. It affects their ability to take care of children. It affects their ability to drive and be independent. So we wanted to really look at that uh, as our primary focus. The other advantage is that the SF36 physical component summary score has been validated for a number of disease conditions and has also been validated for assessing the outcomes of patients with cervical myelopathy. So there was a lot of previous clinical science behind it, uh, but ultimately my focus was what makes the most difference for patients. So we should touch on the type of procedures involved, because whilst this was principally a a comparison of front versus back surgery, you did have some constraints on the type of anterior and posterior procedures that were going to be performed. Perhaps you could talk us through those and, and, and why they were introduced. Absolutely. So one of the things we wanted to be certain about was that we were standardizing uh, the procedures as much as surgeons would allow, and we were not introducing variables that could affect the results and take away from the central question of front uh, versus back. We elected with the anterior procedure to include only patients who were going to be treated with multi-level anterior cervical discectomy infusion. We were concerned that if we allowed for multi-level corpectomy, for example, that we might see some of the complications that we know occur in patients who have these larger, more complex uh, procedures. We also restricted the trial to either an anterior or a posterior uh, procedure. And so if we included multi-level corpectomy procedures, those are often supplemented with posterior fixation. And so that would not really help us answer the question because both anterior and posterior surgery would be included in those types of cases. In terms of the posterior cases, we went with laminectomy and instrumented fixation as a standard approach, and we included laminoplasty also as a posterior approach. And there's some interesting history behind this. Uh, As we started our trial, there was very little interest in including laminoplasty. But as I mentioned, we did this pilot study and uh, presented the uh, results of the pilot study comparing anterior cervical discectomy infusion, multilevel, with posterior laminectomy and uh, lateral mass fixation. And I presented these results at the Cervical Spine Research Society in Europe. And um, there were a lot of questions from the audience, from European spine surgeons, who asked, why would we be focusing an anterior-posterior trial on only fusion techniques when laminoplasty has become such an important form of treatment for myelopathy, not only in Europe, but in most other areas of the world. And we acknowledged that in North America, there's far less utilization of laminoplasty, but we thought it would be an important thing to add to this trial so that we could understand, at least in North America, how laminoplasty compares with the uh, ventral uh, and dorsal fusion procedures. Just to be precise then, so whilst you're randomized to posterior surgery then, there was a decision at a surgeon level then whether or not to perform laminoplasty versus uh, instrumented fusion? Yes, that is correct. And um, the, the reason there is that the number of patients that 
be required to do a scientifically rigorous three-way randomized uh, trial is much higher. And we wanted to have a trial that we could get completed within two to three years in terms of getting the patients enrolled and increasing that number of patients by a substantial number to do a three-way trial we thought would be not very feasible. And further, many of the centers that had agreed to randomize patients in this trial did not have a surgeon on staff that was comfortable with laminoplasty. So we had not only less utilization of laminoplasty amongst our surgeons, but also a lack of training on laminoplasty in a number of centers. And so we wanted to give people the option to choose. So before we touch on on the results, perhaps I could ask you what your gut feeling was at the beginning of this trial. Did you have an idea about what you thought thought you were going to demonstrate? I did. I had uh, less experience with treating patients with laminoplasty when we got started with this trial, but I thought that patients who were treated with anterior cervical discectomy infusion would do better. And I thought this because I had seen so many patients treated with posterior cervical decompression and fusion have more pain after surgery, have greater difficulty returning to work uh, after surgery, and these patients seemed to have more complications uh, after surgery. And I think you allude to there the fact that their results turned out a little bit different because I think my initial impression would be exactly the same. That's true. And I think, you know, this represents perhaps for us as surgeons a real opportunity to focus in again on what matters to patients. Because I'll be perfectly honest, as somebody who really cares about patient outcome, I rarely focused a lot of my uh, interviews with patients after surgery on their swallowing capability if they didn't bring it up to me. And I was very focused in on their myelopathic symptoms, whether they were having pain, whether they were having any problems with weakness or things uh, around their physical functioning. One of the things that was very surprising to, I think, almost all of the surgeons in the group was the number of patients treated with multilevel anterior cervical discectomy and fusion who had problems with swallowing and dysphagia after surgery. And in fact, from an overall complications perspective, that really drove the results. And it's something we just, as, as physicians, had not been as focused upon, even though we all know that there's a, a known rate of dysphagia after surgery. But this is something that affects patients' quality of life, their ability to eat after surgery. And I don't think it necessarily means that all anterior cervical spine surgery is not right for patients. Rather, I think it means that we as doctors need to be concerned about this in a way that we haven't been before and to perhaps devise better strategies to avoid dysphagia when we operate from the front of the spine. That result too struck me because almost exclusively that anterior morbidity complication was the dysphagia, as you mentioned, with quite a lot persisting at measurements at three, three plus months. Well, how was that measured or reported? So that was measured by an independent study nurse, separate from the physician, interviewing patients about their swallowing. And we kept this very simple. Um, Rather than use some complex questionnaire around uh, swallowing function, we simply had the nurse 
ask some standardized questions of patients, whether they had any difficulty with their swallowing after surgery, whether it was affecting their ability to eat, whether they were bothered by it, and whether they thought that they should seek medical treatment or medical evaluation uh, for this. And we asked this periodically after the uh, surgery was performed, one month, three months, six months, and then one year after surgery. And so as well as experiencing it, this was a, something that they were also also bothered by. Yes. And so one of the questions that came up uh, as we had our investigator meetings and one of the things that our data safety monitoring board was curious about because the dysphagia results or the real asymmetry in the uh, uh, dysphagia results came to the attention of the data safety monitoring board early on. And what was observed was that this finding was not particular to one or two sites. Uh, that this was a finding that was really broad in its uh, its prevalence amongst uh, all of the sites and was not severe to the point that it was resulting in people having, you know, gastrostomy tubes or uh, NG tube feeding tubes or anything like this. So they didn't feel like the trial needed to halt because of a major safety issue. But they did note that, that the findings around dysphagia were broad prevalent and were generally something that patients did not want to bring up to their surgeon. And were you able to glean any perspectives in perhaps what might be driving that dysphagia other than the anterior surgery itself? You know, I think that there's obviously some aspects to the uh, anterior surgery, retraction on the esophagus, a soft tissue swelling that are probably causing uh, this dysphagia. doesn't really help us understand why not all patients have this. There may be some nuances to the technique that uh, reduce the uh, incidence of dysphagia. And I think that's going to be material that will be important for further study. But what we did not see was major differences in dysphagia amongst the sites. So it seems to be a broad phenomenon that is associated with multi-level anti-cervical uh, surgery as opposed to a specific surgeon technique. Just one final question on that area, because I believe I'm right in saying that the anterior procedures all involved a, a plate fixation as well. Is that right? That is correct. That is correct. Yes, they all involved a plate. We did not look in great detail at the types of plates that surgeons were using. We allowed surgeons to use whatever plate uh, they were most comfortable with. So I don't think I can speak to the thickness of the plate and uh, incidence of dysphagia quite yet, but we do have all of the postoperative imaging stored in the database, and so we could start to look at some of those questions. I think it's an interesting further extension, isn't it? Because I, I know I speak from the UK and that the, the use of a, a plate is not, is not everywhere and some people go without a plate. And we've had some preliminary data from the UK that actually that plate itself might increase the risk of dysphagia slightly. But yeah, I mean, this sort of flagged that in my mind a little bit, but um, something for further inquiry. That's a really, really important point. And I think something clearly that uh, this trial's uh, data suggests that we look into in a lot more detail. So we have gone quite into detail there in the anterior procedure. Perhaps we could just back up a little bit and give us the, the overall headline results then uh, uh, for you of the, of the trial. Overall, I would say the trial showed uh, three things in my mind. Number one, it showed that 
for patients who are randomized to an either anterior or posterior procedure, that there were more complications seen with the anterior procedure, as we've talked about, uh, primarily uh, dysphagia, and importantly, also dysphagia that largely resolved. Second is that patient-reported physical functioning, the overall patient-reported outcome, was the same between anterior and posterior procedures. So that, I think, was a very important point to determine. But within the patient-reported physical functioning, we saw that patients who were treated with this laminoplasty procedure appeared to have better outcomes than those patients treated with posterior cervical decompression and fusion, and also better outcomes than those patients treated with multilevel anterior cervical discectomy and uh, fusion. This laminoplasty also was associated with the least number of complications, which I think was also very, very important for patients. And lastly, I think there was some overall feeling that while this was not a trial that was designed to measure the effectiveness of surgery for treating myelopathy, the uniform improvements seen in patients who were recommended for surgery suggest, I think from this uh, trial's results, that surgery, in fact, is an effective treatment for patients uh, with myelopathy with improvements on multiple validated patient-reported outcome measures. So I just wanted to explore your thoughts on that laminoplasty finding, because I think as well, for me, that was a very striking finding, because this is really a procedure which has been been proposed for decades. I think back in the 60s in, in Japan, this concept of laminoplasty was first first proposed, yet relatively infrequently performed both in, in North America and actually the UK, although, as you mentioned, continental Europe and more widely, uh, increasingly. Why do you think that might be that it was perhaps stumbling across something that's really been an opportunity or possibility for us for decades? Yeah, I think that is a fundamental question. And there are probably multiple reasons uh, for that. One of the things that I think is important to consider is that laminoplasty can avoid the use of cadaver bone. And cadaver bone is culturally unacceptable in certain parts of the world, particularly in the Far East. And so, as you mentioned, in Japan, laminoplasty became widely utilized uh, very quickly. The population of patients in Japan often are more likely to be associated with OPLL and uh, myelopathy, as well as a congenitally narrowed spinal canal. So there are a number of patients who need treatment for uh, myelopathy. Also, I think there's the issue of uh, surgical training. I think that in North America in particular, I can't speak for the UK, but a number of fellowship-trained spine surgeons are not actually trained on laminoplasty. And this ultimately, I think, affects utilization of the procedure after fellowship. And lastly, and this is not a small matter, laminoplasty is not reimbursed as well uh, as the anterior and posterior fusion surgeries. And while we would like to think that this is not a factor in surgical decision-making, I think we have to acknowledge that it may well be. And that's something that is uh, changing. Laminoplasty uh, received a, a formal code, I believe about 10 or 12 years ago, But before then, it was uh, actually difficult to get reimbursed for doing it. 
And so that probably delayed the utilization, at least, of the procedure in the United States. But I think it's multifactorial. I think it's an important observation that its uh, utilization is so low. And one of the things that I'm hoping for is that this uh, trial highlights its potential role in treating patients with myelopathy and that we start to see more education around the procedure. And I think we will need further data on head-to-head comparisons between laminoplasty and posterior decompression infusion, as well as laminoplasty and anterior cervical discectomy infusion to really understand its uh, overall uh, results as it relates to the alternatives. I think one of the other things in my mind, which again is just really speculation, is that perhaps as surgeons who you know, in general love technological advances and new technology coming along, perhaps we've been allured by the quite sophisticated advances in the instrumentation that's that's come along without perhaps doing sufficient evaluation of them. Do you think that's fair? I think that's fair. One of the other things that I think is important is that a lot of us uh, surgeons have thought about myelopathy as a disorder that's associated with compression of the spinal cord and multiple repetitive injuries from motion against those stenotic regions of the spinal cord. And so as we think about the pathophysiology of cervical myelopathy, it seemed natural, I think, for us as surgeons to believe that fusion of the spinal column would ultimately be important in addition to decompression for treating patients with myelopathy. One of the differences clearly with laminoplasty is that it is ostensibly a motion preservation type of surgery. And it may be the case that from a patient outcomes perspective, that preservation of this motion, whether it's anterior or whether it's posterior, could be important in the overall results of treatment for cervical myelopathy. I think it's important to add, I believe the trial will continue follow-up for up to five years because I imagine there is a, you know, in terms of the, the role of that instrumentation, one presumes if there's going to be additional benefit, it might come, come down the line. Absolutely, yes. So we have a follow-up that's planned for five years. We have uh, results that are now at the three-year level that will be uh, presenting at the uh, Congress of Neurological Surgeons in Austin, Texas this fall, as well as at the uh, spine section meeting in uh, San Diego later in uh, July. And I can share with you that the three-year results show durability of the findings that we reported at uh, one and two years. It looks as if the laminoplasty results are still superior to ventral fusion and dorsal fusion, and that the results in terms of uh, durability of treatment for uh, myelopathy also persist uh, at three years, regardless of which procedure is selected. Where do you think this leaves the field now? Where do we need to go next in, in terms of our research? Yeah, so I think great, great questions. One of the uh, things that we are going to be reporting out on from this uh, CSMS trial is uh, some of the more detailed health resource utilization associated with these uh, three procedures. Because ultimately, I think in medicine, we we need to be concerned about the costs of the uh, procedures that we do. We need to be concerned about the costs that follow the surgeries that we do, whether it's physical therapy, whether it's medications. And we also need to be concerned about the loss of productivity and how quickly people return to work. 
So we're going to have some detailed studies reporting out on cost, health resource utilization, uh, return to work. The other thing that we didn't talk about very much is the alignment of the uh, cervical spine. We did not see big differences between preoperative and postoperative treatment in terms of the uh, SVA or sagittal uh, vertical axis. But over time, there may be differences amongst these uh, procedures in some of the alignment parameters, and we're going to be focusing in on that uh, uh, with, uh, with a lot of detail. And lastly, I should say, I think that one of the things that I take away from this uh, trial, particularly focusing on the laminoplasty results, is we're going to need a head-to-head randomized future trial to compare laminoplasty versus fusion procedures for uh, cervical myelopathy. And uh, my group is uh, engaged in some of the early planning around that trial. And I think just to echo your point on the health resource utilization, this was something that really came up as a, a critical outcome that needs to be measured going forward. So we, we do look forward to, to those results. I guess one more final question put back to you now with the intimate knowledge of the data. Has your practice individually changed as a result of these, these findings? Yes. You know, I do more cervical laminoplasty than I did when we started this trial. And I've heard that from a number of the investigators including investigators who, as they started this trial, didn't believe that laminoplasty was even a valid treatment for this condition, primarily because of their uh, feeling or bias that the spinal column needed to be fused when treating myelopathy. One of the things that I think helped make this trial successful was that we had patients, real patients, involved at the outset in the design of the trial. And that would, I think, sound very odd to uh, many uh, physician scientists, but I can tell you as one person involved in clinical research that the types of questions that patients ask when trials are being designed are very practical, very pragmatic, and ultimately very relevant. And I think their input helped make this trial hopefully a little bit more relevant, not just for physicians, but for patients as well. I fully echo that. And I think that's been a real learning curve of our journey with, with myelopathy.org as a, what started as a patient information resource and turned into a charity, which, which has representation throughout North America, uh, from a sort of community perspective, as well as the UK largely, that they do have a totally different perspective and insight on, on what is going on that is of great value. Definitely. Definitely. So you had perhaps quite a technical conversation there about a really landmark piece of research for myelopathy. What do you think the take-home messages are for somebody living with the condition? I found the whole discussion very interesting. And what I really love about this podcast is that it gives us, the people living with DCM, a great insight into the medical world of the surgeon and vice versa. And it was great to see again the collaboration between the patients and the surgeons playing a big part in the success of these studies. I think this is vital and beneficial for everyone to get a better understanding of this condition. I had multi-level anterior cervical disectomy with fusion from C4 to C7 in 2015, and I agree with the outcome of the study that swallowing was a big issue for me for up to three months post-op. I think my diet consisted of mashed up wheat mix for a while, but it did slowly 
come back to normal. That's really interesting. And how did you find that when you were recovering? What was your, how were you feeling about that? Um, it was quite frightening because every time I was eating anything sort of solid, I felt that I was going to choke. So for three months solid, I couldn't eat anything but Weetabix. But then I slowly felt as if the neck muscle slowly relaxed. So if anybody is struggling with eating after their operation, yeah, just dig in there. It will come better. That's really interesting because I think it came across in the interview that this is not something that I was particularly aware of. I think it's a question of, you know, I just hadn't asked the right questions of people as they're recovering from from surgery. And if we turn our attention back to a previous episode and the idea around nutrition, and nutrition is really important for recovering from an operation. You know, if you cannot eat the right food afterwards, then there are potentially implications for that. Yes, definitely. And if you go into the support group, you know, a lot of people are really struggling with eating food after their operation. I think, you know, turning our attention to the type of operation, because this is one of the other findings that really stood out for me, was this procedure called a laminoplasty, which seemed to have a lot of the benefits of surgery without some of the risk of the anterior procedures or that other form of procedure where you, you stabilize the spine with, with metal rods. And that's not really an operation that's performed that frequently uh, in the UK. It's performed very frequently in other parts of, of, of Europe and also Asia. But perhaps that's something we need to look at in more, in more detail, particularly if, as you say, this experience of dysphagia is so troubling. Why is it that the, the operation from the back of the leg is more popular in the US than it is you know, in the UK? I think that's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure I have the full answers to that. I think the idea around the back of the neck operation, particularly when you put in these rods, is that that stability reduces any movement which may be placing additional stress on the spinal cord. I think the philosophy in some ways is a bit like, you know, if you break a bone, you put it in a plaster cast, and that stability allows it to heal most effectively. You know, that does come with some increased risks. And as we saw in this trial, a lot of what we call morbidity, sort of poor experiences of things like neck pain and perhaps, you know, doesn't really give the advantage that, that people think it might do. I think that really shows why these trials are so important because they really shine a light on a direct comparison between all these different procedures. And one of the other things I found quite fascinating by this trial was the approach of how they, they undertook the randomization. So they had this sort of virtual MDT where lots of different spine experts looked at a patient's case and made a decision about what they thought would be the right thing to do. And it really did come through that... Um, the patients enjoyed that experience, the idea that they were getting multiple different opinions. And you know, for a condition like myelopathy where there isn't so much black or white, that's probably incredibly helpful to, to effective decision-making. And, and it brings my mind back to something that Dr. Jim Harrop from Thomas Jefferson University said in one of our previous episodes about how he recommends to his patients they get second opinions because, you know, that individual in the moment at that time, you know, it's you know, you might get a different view, different viewpoint, and it's about understanding and taking that information together to make something that's right for, for you as an individual. Is that not something that is already done in a routine care? Not really. I mean, we're talking here about the idea of a sort of a multidisciplinary team meeting. And I think in the main, decisions around surgical treatment for myelopathy are often just made in the moment in the clinic. There are some instances where they're referred for second opinions, but it's not the norm. And you know, it seemed relatively straightforward to be into, able to introduce that concept into practice. You know, we do have these MDT forums for other conditions, um, and perhaps it could make a big difference. 
So what's up next month? Well, we're returning to a theme of pain, and we're joined by Dr. Deepak Ravindran, pain consultant, following the publication of his new book, The Pain-Free Mindset, Seven Steps to Taking Control and Overcoming Chronic Pain. I think you're in a topic that will be well received by our community. Yes, definitely. I'm looking forward to this one. So final big thanks to Dr. Zohar Gogwala for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and made possible by an award from the National Institute for Health Research, United Kingdom. Although the views expressed are not necessarily those of the NIHR, the National Health Service or the Department of Health. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. There's plenty of information and support to be found at myelopathy.org, but if you've got a question or an experience to share, we'd love to hear it please do get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. Until next time, goodbye.